reading today is on 1012 in the Bible, just under the seat in front of you. So 1012, and it's from Mark, chapter 9, and it starts at verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Thanks, Glennis, and uh, good day, uh, people. Yeah, all right, good. And listen, I need you to do two things for me. Number one, uh, if you can keep your Bible open at Mark chapter 9, that would be especially helpful. Number two, I just need to know whether you've got a sense of humour. Have you got a sense of humour? Again, three people do. All right. Well, then, uh, then let's watch this and uh, enjoy it. Ah, hello. It's nice to see you all here. Now, as the more perceptive of you have probably realised by now, this is hell. <laughs> and I am the devil. Good evening. Uh, but you can call me Toby, if you like. We, we try to keep things informal here, as well as infernal. Um, that's just a little joke of mine. <laughs> I tell it every time. Now, you're all here for 
eternity. Ooh. Which I hardly need tell you is a heck of a long time. Um, so you'll all get to know each other pretty well by the end. But for now, I'm going to have to split you up into groups. Will you stop screaming? Thank you. Now, murderers. Murderers, over here, please. Thank you. Uh, looters and pillagers, over here. Thieves, if you could join them. And lawyers, you're in that lot. Fornicators, if you could step forward. My God, there are a lot of you. Uh, could I split you up into adulterers and the rest? Male adulterers, if you could just form a line in front of that small guillotine in the corner there. Uh, the French, are you here? If you'd just like to come down here with the Germans, that'd be lovely. I'm sure you'll have plenty to talk about. Okay, um, atheists. Atheists, over here, please. You must be feeling a right bunch of nitwits. <laughs> and finally, Christians. Christians. Ah, oh, yes, I'm sorry. I'm afraid the Jews were right. <laughs> if you could come down here, that'd be really kind. Thank you. Okay. Right, well, are there any questions? Yes. No, I'm afraid we don't have any toilets. Um, if you'd read your Bible, you might have seen that it was damnation without relief. <laughs> so if you didn't go before you came, then I'm afraid you're not going to enjoy yourself very much. <laughs> But then I believe that's the idea. Okay, well, it's over to you, Adolf. And I'll uh, catch you all later at the barbecue. Bye. <laughs> all right. Hey, um, makes you wonder what the hell ever happened to hell, doesn't it? At one point in human history, hell was feared, loathed, but now it's a caricature. It's uh, the stuff of cartoons and comedians. The devil used to be a dreaded figure, now he wears a silk smoking jacket and goes by the name Toby. What the hell happened to hell? Is it real? Is it to be feared? Uh, even if it is real, would a loving God send people to hell and on what basis? They're just some of the questions that we're looking at today, neck deep as we are in our series called Confronting Christianity. Uh, remember, in this series we are investigating really confronting questions about the Christian faith, not because we like courting controversy, we love a good scandal, but because we want to develop coherent and compassionate answers to questions that our culture asks of us and our faith. And I'm not sure there's much that's more confronting than hell if it's as real and as terrifying as our scriptures, our Lord Jesus, indicate. And so Rebecca McLaughlin, who wrote the book Confronting Christianity, she left this question of hell to the, the last chapter, the end of her book. She believes that hell is the hardest question to answer, that every other question pales into comparison. It's the most difficult thing Christians are called to believe. It's harder than believing in miracles or prophecy or that God has the right to tell us what to do with our bodies. We feel that, don't we? So I want to start today by asking the question, will the real hell please stand up? 
Then I want to investigate the question, the purpose of hell, why it exists, like why do we need it at all before finally answering the title question, would a loving God send people to hell? So as I said in the introduction, hell was uh, previously a place that people feared. Now, I don't know why this was for every individual in every culture, but in the historical period known as the late Middle Ages, sort of between the 13th and the 15th centuries, the Italian poet Dante Alighieri wrote an epic poem called The Divine Comedy, which was broken up into three parts, Inferno, which is Italian for hell, then followed by Purgatorio, and then finally Paradiso, paradise or heaven. And the part called Inferno describes Dante's journey through hell, guided by the ancient Roman poet Virgil. And in the poem, hell is depicted as nine concentric circles of torment located within the earth, sort of the realm of those who rejected spiritual values by yielding to their primitive human appetites and hurting their fellow human beings. And attached to Dante's poems, uh, poem was a series of woodcut drawings with fearful pictures like this one. They were mostly in black and white, but in people's imaginations, they were hideous. And in the Renaissance period that followed the late Middle Ages, they kept the vivid and frightful pictures, but they just added colour, like in this picture, which is called The Torment of St. Anthony by Michelangelo. Now, you look at all that, and you might go, gee, that was silly back then. You know, how kind of primitive... But that's where billions of people got their understanding of the supernatural realm of heaven and hell and angels and demons and the devil for hundreds of years. Now, can I just say, if you think that is silly, isn't it just as silly to think the devil looks like this? That he's a friendly, likable, larrikin type. He's basically Australian, isn't he? But a cartoon, not to be taken seriously. He's a mascot for a football team. And if that's what demons are like, or if that's what the devil himself is like, then you hardly need to take hell seriously, do you? Won't it be a a place of party where all the slightly naughty kids from school are hanging out and having fun together? I mean, that's what I learned from ACDC, right? So this is what they say. Live and easy, you've got to have like a rock kind of vibe about it. Live and easy, love and free, they drop every G, right? Season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing Leave me be, taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme. Ain't nothing that I'd rather do. Going down, party time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. Now, into this void of uh, sensible information, Jesus speaks in Mark chapter 9, which is what you've got to have it open in front of you. In fact, the chapter begins, as you can see, with a dynamic and vivid heavenly experience known as the transfiguration in which Jesus' divinity is brilliantly revealed as he appears to some of the disciples in dazzling white clothes and he's joined on the top of a mountain by the Old Testament luminaries Moses and Elijah. It's as if the curtains of heaven have been peeled open for a moment and a glimpse into the glorious kingdom coming is given to Peter, James and John before it closes again abruptly heavenly vision but in the next episode a boy who is possessed by an evil spirit is brought before Jesus and the demon causes the boy to convulse violently and foam at the mouth right there's no Toby with a clipboard here it's got real right in front of Jesus 
And when Jesus casts out the demon, it's such a violent experience that the boy lies there motionless to the point where the crowd figured he was dead. You scroll forward just a few verses to where we started this morning, verse 39, and the disciples are concerned that somebody else is casting out demons in Jesus' name. Right, look, at, look at verse 39, it holds Jesus' very terse reply. Don't stop him, for whoever is not against us is for us. Right, a bigger squad is not going to hurt us, fellows. We've got the Romans, we've got the religious, now we've got demons against us. It's not going to hurt us to have a few extras on the bench. There are spiritual forces at play, or if we want to be more accurate, at war. And Jesus is in the thick of it. Now, that might not be enough to convince you to believe in demons. But can I say, if you don't, you're an anomaly across the world and across history. Even today, you go to Latin America, you go to Asia, you go to Africa, you go to even indigenous communities in Australia, people have no trouble believing in demons, the devil, hell, because they have first-hand experience of demons. You don't have to convince them that the spiritual realm is real. They see it play out in their midst often. So before we talk soberly or seriously about hell, you need to get on board the spiritual bus because the spiritual realm is assumed knowledge. Well, Jesus is there at ground zero and he reports in that the spiritual realm is alive and kicking, you know, quite literally, it seems. And as he continues talking in verse 42, it becomes clear that Jesus has got these little kids in his arms still during the whole discussion about casting out demons, right? There's no PG rating here. He had gathered them to show the disciples that instead of arguing over which one of them is the greatest, they should be more childlike rather than childish and recognise that extending favour even to the lowliest of citizens in Jesus' name is the same as extending favour to God. But importantly for us today, he says, look, you can't just welcome these little children, verse 42, You've got to protect them from sin. You can't cause them to sin. And you can't just take sin seriously for the sake of the children. You've got to take it seriously for yourself. Because hell is at stake. Right, let's read verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. Okay, verse 45, he re- re- reiterates the point. Cut off your foot if need be. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And again in verse 47, pluck out your eye if need be. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with just one eye than to have two eyes thrown into hell. Right? It must be an important point that he's making because he says basically the same thing in three, uh, three times. Uh, only adding a further description of hell in verse 48. Have a look. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Wow, you think, smell those roses. So a few things that we need to say about hell before we can address this title question, would a loving God send people there? The first is, we don't know precisely what hell will be like. You know, in some places, hell or God's final judgment is described as outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, In other places, it's described as a blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so you think, well, like, is it hot or is it dark? You know, uh, everlasting worms or gnashing teeth? 
You know, even the word that Jesus uses for hell is the word Gehenna. Well, that's a metaphor. It was the name of a valley in, to the south of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom, in which in the Old Testament, the Israelites had once unthinkably burnt their children in the fire in sacrifice to pagan gods. Then it became the rubbish dump for the city in which the filth and the dead animals were burned. And so by the time of the New Testament, Gehenna, hell, was kind of the default term for God's final judgment. It was an apt symbol for future destruction, which tells us something, that, that our descriptions of hell are symbols. They're metaphors, images, depictions. Friends, that doesn't make them less than true. And you've got to think the imagery is used because the reality they point to is so awful and so potent that normal language just doesn't quite say enough. Now, I love TV. I love my TV. I like TV because it brings the news into my living room. It brings stories to life in color, and it requires very little of me in return. Uh, so I love my TV, although these days I'm trying to curate my media consumption to, to four hours per week, which is what we suggested in that Godly Habits book we gave out on board. So I've, I've had to stop watching most of those mindless home renovation shows that I found so relaxing in the past. Do you know, I have no idea how a TV works, but it doesn't matter, because I don't need to know precisely how a TV works to know that it works precisely. And I reckon hell's like that in some ways. I don't, don't need to know precisely what it is like to know precisely that I do not want to experience it. And you don't need to know the exact contours to know that hell will be terrible, but you know that it must be real because Jesus spoke of it so plainly. In fact, Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he was, he's responsible for 11 out of the 12 references to Gehenna or hell in the New Testament. It's real and it's awful whatever the actual blueprint, and Jesus spoke of it more and more plainly than anyone else. Furthermore, you can see from Mark 9 that it's connected in some ways to our sinfulness. You know, Jesus says you're better off conducting radical self-surgery on your offending body parts to escape hell. And think about it, right? He's, he's got the kids in his arms as he's talking about undying worms and unquenchable fire and bodily amputation. And I think he's very starkly saying, I am not joking. If you cause these little ones to sin, or you yourself are stuck in it, hell awaits. You know, it's real, he's saying. It's terrible. And it's connected to our sin. Now, of course... You might stand back and just ask the question, well, why do we need a hell at all? You know, why not just forgive and forget and move on happily? But you know the answer every time you see an injustice in this life, which is never properly dealt with, and that burn of indignation that you feel about it, that's your answer, isn't it? That unrighted wrong is your answer. Every time a, a large company avoids its tax burden, depriving ordinary people of government services they need, you feel that burn, that's your answer. Every time a government breaks an election promise, every time a person is lured into bonded 
labour or sex slavery by malignant traffickers, every time a kid is bullied, I mean properly bullied, every time a strong person uses their strength, whether it's physical or financial or whatever, against a weaker person rather than protecting that weaker person, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or Vladimir Putin or the schoolyard bully or a, um, an abusive spouse, that burn of injustice that you feel, that is the answer. It explains why we need hell. Do you know about half of our congregation has gone to Europe recently and the other half is going next year? Okay with me if you invite me along. <laughs> I wonder if you went to Europe whether you saw the concentration camps in Germany. Um, Dachau is just outside of Munich, uh, Sachsenhausen just outside of Berlin. And I wonder if you went there whether you felt that death was far too little a punishment for the authors of those monstrosities. Well, if you thought that, then you've answered the question, why do we need hell? It's the ultimate righting of wrongs by God. It is the, the final reckoning for all injustices ever perpetuated. And so there is a part of us which rightly, I mean, rightly yearns for hell, even for hell, for evil and mischief to be brought to light, for perpetrators to be brought to account, for sins to be reckoned and wrongs to be punished. It's a right sense that we have. And it reflects God's righteousness, his moral perfection. But of course the real rub of it is that God is way more thorough and way more perfect than any of us lot. For he will judge not only the obvious monstrosities and the obvious monsters, he will judge it all. He's way more thorough and way more perfect than any of us like. As Rebecca McLaughlin says, the one person with the right to judge has got all the evidence. So pluck out your eye, the one that looks lustfully at someone else or someone else's stuff. Cut off your hand. I think Toby's got a guillotine. Cut off your hand, the one that's taken something that's not yours or inflicted a wound on another or praised a fake God or withheld good from others. We instinctively and rightly, I think, yearn for justice. But when the finger points back at us, when the scanner is applied to the contents of our life, not just our actions and our words, but even our motivations and deep attitudes, we begin to feel very nervous indeed, don't we? Well, we should. It seems to me that's an appropriate response. And the extent to which we feel like the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, that hell seems too harsh for humans who have never claimed to be perfect, whatever that gap is, you know, whatever it is in your mind, that really is a gap in our appreciation of the holiness and the rightness and the justness of God. He will treat us just as our actions and motivations deserve. Would a loving God send people to hell? Well, we have to conclude that a just God should. And Jesus says plainly that he will. Well, finally, let's answer this question. Would a loving God send people to hell? We rightly yearn for justice, but now we find ourselves yearning for something else. What is that other thing that we yearn for? Is it mercy, isn't it? 
mercy. We think we love justice, but as it turns out, God loves it more than we do, and that's wonderful news in the abstract sense. All wrongs will be righted. No unjust injustice will be left unpunished. But in the personal sense, it sounds very uncomfortable. And we wonder if there is something more than justice. We yearn for something slightly more forgiving and gracious and benevolent, where God turns his face towards us rather than away from us, where he dashes our sins and our shortcomings without dashing us. You know, friends, in Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment. You know that, right? In him, love triumphs over hell. So I guess it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else because he was the one who experienced it on behalf of everyone else. The suffering he experienced on the cross, not so much the physical agony, though that was horrific. You know, we get our word excruciating from the word crucifixion, cross, gives us a hint of the kind of physical torment involved. But if you remember to the night before Jesus died in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus didn't pray that the physical pain would be taken away or be removed. He prayed that the cup of God's wrath might be taken away. It tells us that the real suffering Jesus endured was the hell-like experience of absorbing the righteous wrath of God that was due to us for our sins and shortcomings on our behalf, coupled with the hell-like experience of having his eternal relationship with the Father severed, the Father turning his face away and forsaking him under death. So if hell is both the pouring out of God's rightful judgment upon our sins and having him withdraw his grace and favour and friendship from us, then the Apostles' Creed is absolutely correct when it says, on the cross he descended into hell. And Jesus took that upon himself willingly, sacrificially, and oh so painfully. And it must raise the question in your mind, why? Why would he do that? Of course, our New Testaments continuously remind us it is because God so loves us. So I reckon the question is not so much, would a loving God send people to hell? I mean, a just God ought to and will, but would a loving God go to hell? Would a loving God send his son, part of himself, to experience hell on our behalf so we wouldn't need to? The Son of God went to hell for us, experiencing the full horror of its torment so that we might escape its fury, whether it's fire or darkness or something other, so that instead of bearing that horror ourselves, we can be friends with God even now and have, and have a future with Him so glorious we could scarcely even imagine it. You know, that's why we say the good news is good news, because the bad news of hell from which he rescues us is so bad. Much more important than a just God sending people to hell is a loving God going to hell on our behalf so that we don't need to. Well, what does that mean for us? 
Firstly, it means we ought to turn back to him this very day, I think, as a matter of priority and urgency. You know, the great American preacher and publisher, D.L. Moody, has said, you can't talk on the topic of hell unless you've got a tear in your eye. Like, it's there. Believe me, it's there. I just don't think you can talk on the topic of hell without a sense of urgency either. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, then he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Friends, he's experienced hell on our behalf. All that awaits is his return with his angels. And you can see that what is required of us is that we obey his gospel, which means we trust in him and his work. And you will see that his people there in the last line are described as those who believe in him. Not those who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Not even those who cut off every body part imaginable. But those who believe in him. So turn to Jesus as a matter of priority and trust and believe in him. For those of us who are Christians, the reality of hell makes a difference in this life as well. For starters, we take sin seriously. You know, you think of our sins are things which can send us to hell. Now that we can be sure we'll be spared from hell, we're not going to want to go back to them carelessly indulging in them, are we? You know, Mark 9 reminds us that radical surgery is required in our lives, cutting out those parts, and I really think Jesus means simple parts of our lives rather than body parts, those bits that are just displeasing to God. We take our sins seriously, and the reality of hell also makes a difference to our sense of justice and revenge, though it is right to continue to burn against injustice and to work where we can to alleviate it at the very least redressing the injustices that we are responsible for. We can actually leave ultimate justice to God. He will right all wrongs, which means we can release our desire for revenge. Think about it this way. Every single wrong has either been punished in his son or will be punished on that last day. So you don't need to exact vengeance, but you can instead pursue mercy and forgiveness, or at the very least, not remain embittered. So Christians, let's worry about our own sins and let God worry about everyone else's. Well, as we finish, friends, uh, I want to say that hell is no joke. According to Jesus, who experienced it on our behalf, it is real and it's terrible. Whatever the blueprint, a, a just punishment and an ultimate righting of all wrongs, and a just God should send people there. Though it brings me no pleasure to say it and brings God no pleasure to do it. But so much more importantly and powerfully and urgently, it is entirely avoidable. But only by trusting in the one who suffered it on our behalf. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, God, we have 
considered the words of Jesus about hell this morning in a serious way and forgive us for when we have thought hell was a joke, the stuff of cartoons and caricatures and comedians. For any friends here today who have not yet considered it seriously, I pray that you might put it on their hearts to do that today as a matter of urgency. For those of us who have, we are just so grateful that you have spared us having to bear the torment ourselves. But instead, the Lord Jesus has experienced it on our behalf. We do pray in light of that you would help us to take our sin seriously and you would give us the grace to release our revenge so that we might live for him with joyful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.